We're going to continue in the book of 2 Peter this morning. And uh, I was, uh, I'm sure you guys are on Facebook or YouTube or some form of social media, and you watch, I see some people saying no, but you're probably aware nonetheless of these baby reveals that, that take place, you know, like some of the things that just seem so simple. Um, when, uh, even when our boys were, were born, Nate was uh, revealed the old-fashioned way. The doctor said, it's a boy. Uh, we looked at the ultrasound. We were getting the ultrasound w- with Corton, and the, the nurse or technician said, it looks, you know, do you want to know, yes or no? And we're like, yeah, we want to know. And she said, looks like you've got a boy. But now, um, you know, you, they set the, the golf ball up on the tee, and they, they hit it, and it explodes pink or blue, or the confetti. Um, I've, I've seen, I, you can buy these packs that you guys for, you got a muscle car or a nice truck or something like that, you can put these burnout packs under the rear wheels of your truck and it'll burn out either pink or blue. Um, all, all kinds of things that, you know, cake cutting and you open it up, you, you guys have seen them. And, and so the, the idea there is that there is a truth, but you don't know what it is yet. And so we have God's word, the scripture, because he had truth that he wanted to reveal to us. So he didn't use confetti, he didn't use a baseball bat or a a burnout pack. We've got his word and that's how God has chosen uh, to to reveal his truth uh, to us. And so we've gotta base our our life as Christians, we base our, our life on that fact that this is God's word and that it's true. But there's, there's really probably, uh, for Christians, we should have a great deal of concern over what is truth or what is perceived to be truth in our culture today. Um, I think pretty much all of us have ruled out the tabloids as a source of truth, right? Uh, a few years ago, the CIA revealed that Dick Cheney is a robot, if you would believe the tabloids. Uh, farmer shoots 27-pound grasshopper. You know, and he's holding it there. We don't look to the tabloids uh, for truth. Facebook, maybe we get fooled sometimes. How many of you have received a fake friend request and clicked on it and been like, oh, no, now you got to let everybody know. Don't take, you know, so we get, we get fooled there. News media, you know, you read the articles or you read somebody's blog or you're watching the news and you, you try to decipher what is bias, what is the truth, what is exaggerated, what's been left out. And so, you know, we sometimes even wonder what can we believe to be true. So let me give you um, some statistics from, I believe this was, this study was done in, in 2020, but researcher George Barna says in, in 2020, only half of Americans now believe in an all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, and forgiving God, only half. Less than half believe that the Bible is completely true and relevant to modern life. And probably not surprisingly, younger people, adults under the age of 30, were much less likely than the older adults. Only 31% of adults less than 30 would say that God is the foundation of truth. And so we see there's, there's a major shift. If we, if we went back and look at the statistics from, you could go 50 years ago or 40 or 30 or even 20 years ago, uh, you would see um, a big difference and in, in, in a big movement in those statistics. So 
You know, when I, when I read those statistics that young people are losing their faith, or even worse, that young people are growing up with no faith at all, um, you know, I want to respond for us as a church and say, here we are, Lord, use us. Use us to reach the next generation who are statistically less likely to believe that there is a God in heaven, that the Bible is true, that there's any sort of morality other than what you come up with for yourself. So this morning as, we, as we're here, my prayer is that we will gain uh, confidence in God's word, that our faith in God's word would be strengthened this morning, uh, that these words that give hope, these words that give life, that show us the way to love and joy and peace, these words that bring eternal life, that we would have just a renewed assurance of the truth that's there, uh, and maybe even uh, help us when we have conversations with those who would, who would say, no, there's nothing really there for me. I don't, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to believe what's in there. So we're gonna, we're gonna pick up where we left off uh, two weeks ago. Didn't Pastor Peter do a good job last week? That was, that was a great, great, uh, great service as we recognized the graduates and he had a special message to them but to all of us. Uh, but we're, so we'll pick up where we left off the week before in 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verse 16. And so Paul is just, uh, excuse me, Peter um, has, has just talked a little bit about how um, God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he, he gave uh, um, some of the things, some of the character qualities and attributes that should be present in our lives and increasing in our lives as we follow Christ. And he said, look, I know that some of these things are just, um, they seem basic, and you think, man, you, you talk about all the, this all the time, and he said, these are the foundational things, and I'm gonna keep saying them. So he said those things, and then he says here in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing that this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for your, for your word. Thank you for revealing it to us, for uh, speaking uh, to men and through men to write down the words that you have for us today. And Lord, as we study this passage this morning, I just pray that um, our faith would be strengthened, uh, that our knowledge would increase, as it says, he said earlier in the chapter, that um, your divine power is available to us through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So help us to understand this, Lord. Uh, and Lord, give us confidence to stand on your word as truth in a world that increasingly would say that uh, it's not valid, it doesn't count anymore. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, P Peter in these verses is trying to affirm the validity of scripture. He's giving us a glimpse into 
uh, how God's word even came to be in this book format. And uh, he's, he's telling us we can have confidence in the word of God. And this is Peter's burden of proof. What he saw, what he heard, and what was written. And we'll look at, we'll look at all three of those. So he starts here in verse 16. Uh, well, well, before we go to verse 16, we're gonna, let's flip back if you want to, Matthew chapter 17. We're gonna look at a few verses there. And this is the experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus when Jesus said, come with me up onto the top of this mountain. And uh, I'm just gonna read that account briefly because this is what Peter's talking about in the first three verses of this passage. Uh, And it says in Matthew chapter 17, verse one, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. It was just the four of them. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Jesus was transfigured or transformed before his eyes. He was, his clothes became white, his, um, his face uh, shined like the sun, and, and it was just too much for the disciples. They fell on their faces in fear. And what the, what the disciples were catching a, just a small glimpse of was Jesus in his glory. And I think that's probably why as we, we work through the book of 1 Peter, Peter was always pointing to that day when, when Jesus would come again, we'd see him in his glory, that day when we would, as believers, go to be with Jesus. And I think, quite possibly, it's because he caught a glimpse of that on the mountain with James and John. They saw Jesus transfigured in, in white clothes. His face was shining so much that he had to turn, and, and, and they, they bowed before him on the ground. And Peter saw that, and it was just a small glimpse of what was to come, what is to come for us as believers. And so Peter, when he talks about him in, in, in 1 Peter, we looked at chapter one, he talks about the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That living hope, I think it's because Peter caught a glimpse of that when he was on the mountain with James and John. And so he says, he says we were there, we saw Jesus uh, transfigured. And so here in verse 16, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't come up with like a clever way to make you think that this happened or that what we were saying was true. Um, we, we told you what we saw. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And, and John, who was on the mountain with, with was Peter, James, and John with Jesus, he said something similar when he opened his letter in 1 John chapter 1. Peter, or excuse me, John says this, That which was from the beginning, he's speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, that was Jesus, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. 
Peter said, or John says, we were there, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And he says in verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, we have seen, we have heard, we've touched, and because we've experienced that, we're, this, is, this is why we're telling it to you. And I hope that as believers today, we've got a small taste of that, that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as, as Psalm 34 says, in our own lives, and that would be the motivation to say, man, God has made a difference in my life. Let me tell, him, tell you about him so that he can make a difference in your life too. So they were with him, they saw the miracles, they heard his teaching, they watched him heal people, they, they watched him forgive sins. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him on the holy mountain. Read these verses again. We didn't follow the cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses for when he received honor and glory, when he was transfigured and the voice born to him by the father, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased we heard this very voice because we were with him. We were with him, we saw him, we heard him. So if you were in a, if you were in a court of law and a, a witness came up and sat down on the stand and gave testimony, the jury's sitting there listening, trying to decide. This person's saying, well, I saw this and I heard this and, and the jury's deciding, is this true or not true? And you might believe it if it's one person that testified, but if one person testified and sat down, and then another testified the same testimony and sat down, and then another, you'd have more confidence if three or four people got up and said, this is what we saw, this is what we heard. And so when we look at the scriptures, we read through the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were writing down what they had seen. They were writing down what they had heard. And when we read these, these accounts, they, they're, I believe the term is co corroborating accounts. They affirm each other, they, they're, they're not contradictory, and so we have confidence that God's word is true. But Peter says though, experience only is not the basis for believing the truth, for understanding the truth. Because you have people all the time come up with some crazy stories, right? Oh, I picked up a hitchhiker, it was actually an angel. You know, or these crazy stories, and what can we believe? Can we believe every experience that someone relates is true? Peter says that he has greater testimony to the truth of, of God's word. And he says in verse 19, we have the, prof the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He said, we saw, we heard. John said, we touched him. And Peter says here, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So more importantly than my testimony of what I saw and what I heard, he said, we have God's word. Now they wouldn't have the full uh, account of scripture that we have today, but they would have had the Old Testament. The, they would have referred to him as the law and the, and the prophets. So um, Genesis um, up until the end of the, the Old Testament, they would have had those. And he says, these are the things that more fully confirm the truth. What we saw, what we heard was good, but God's word, he says, nothing can beat God's word. And of course, we're all here this morning because of personal experience, right? Somebody told us about Jesus. We maybe read it in his word. We've experienced God's love. We've experienced God's peace. And because of our experience, 
we come here not just to talk about our experiences, we're here to talk about God's word, which reveals the truth to us. And so Peter says, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Of course, the Psalm in Psalm 119 says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word guides us through life. So most of us would say, well, yeah, God's word's changed my life. That's why I'm here this morning. Not because of what somebody told me about what they experienced, but because I, I read God's word or somebody told me about God's word and it's changed my life. But what about the person that you maybe meet this afternoon or you meet tomorrow at work or walking in the park and they would say, well, the Bible hasn't changed my life. Why would I even consider it? So we're gonna uh, step outside of God's word. Of course, God's, what God says in his word is true. There is truth outside of God's word. Two plus two equals four. It's not in the Bible, we, we know that's true. But let me give you some reasons why we could believe God's word is true. Or you could say to someone who says, no, nah, I'm not even, I won't even consider it. I have no reason to open God's word and think that it might, there might be truth in there for me. Let me give you a couple things. This is, this is helpful for those kinds of conversations. Uh, this this um, mathematician and scientist, Peter W. Stoner is his name. He did some, some mathematis- mathematics for the existence of Jesus. So of course in the Old Testament, there's over 300 prophecies that foretell that a Messiah would come and that foretells different things. So let's just say that out of the 300 plus, eight of them were true. So I've got eight written down here. The time of his birth, he'd be born in Bethlehem, he'd be born of a virgin, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he would be mocked, he'd be crucified, he would be pierced, and he would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. So those are eight. He said, let's just say, that only eight of the 300 were true. He says the chances of eight of those, or you could pick different eight if you don't like those eight, the chances that eight of those would come true by chance is one in 10 to the power of 17. So to kind of wrap your mind around that, it is 10 million billion. Imagine you had 10, imagine you had a a billion dollars, 10 million times over. That's the chances that that would be true. So a a picture for that would be the equivalent if you took the whole state of Texas and you uh, poured silver dollars into the state of Texas till, till they were stacked two feet tall across the entire state and one of them was painted red. All right, so then I put a blindfold on you Todd, I'll put a blindfold on you and I'll send you off. I say, you walk out, you can walk as far as you want. You've got the whole state of Texas to walk across and bend over and pick up a silver dollar. See if you get the red one. That's the chances that eight, just eight prophecies would come true. Now, if you want to, if we wanted to go to a bigger number, like 40 or 50, you'd be filling our entire galaxy. I forget how many times over, not with silver dollars, but with atoms to make 40 or 50 of those be true. So anyways, the the math is astronomical. So we can take 
the Old Testament prophecy about Jesus and it validates for us, we, we believe that it's true, but for someone who doesn't believe it's true, you could sit down with them, <clears throat> excuse me, and say, let me give you some reasons why you could consider this. <clears throat> Other people, though, are more skeptical. <clears throat> How do you guys like the pollen floating around out there this week? <laughs> Others, though, are more skeptical. They say, yeah, but, but who's to say that those prophecies weren't changed? You know, that Jesus was born, they went back and wrote some things in there to make sure that it all lined up for them. <clears throat> we don't have the original manuscripts, that's true. We're not, reading in the, we're not reading in the original Greek or Hebrew this morning. We're reading a, a translation in English. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you guys have heard of them before. Let me tell you just a, a little bit about them. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Literally two shepherd boys are, are out taking care of the sheep. They saw some, some cliffs there and there was a crevice or maybe a cave-like opening and they, like boys do, right? Hey, let's see who could throw a rock up into that hole up there. And so they were throwing rocks up and one of them threw a rock into this little cave or crevice and they heard something break. So they climbed up there to look and there was pottery up there and in the pottery were ancient scrolls. Turns out that these ancient scrolls uh, was, were, were large portions of the Old Testament. So over the next five or six years, they, they found more scrolls in, in the same area and more caves. And this is what, the, what they discovered. In, in 1947, the Old Testament that, that the whole world was reading was based off of um, a, a copy from 935, the year 935. So one, almost a th basically 900 years after Jesus had died, there was a, a complete Hebrew, Hebrew manuscript of the Old Testament. And that's where we got our English translations from. So these guys found these Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, and these scrolls were found to be written between 100 and 200 years before Jesus walked the earth. So these, these Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered were 1,000 years older than the... Than the, than the they weren't scrolls at that time, it was a codex, it was actually a bound book, but that the, the scriptures that from the year 935 that all of our translations came from, they found these manuscripts 1,000 years older. So here's the big question, right? How many changes were there over the years? We're talking about documents that were written just before Jesus to documents that were written 900 years after Jesus' death. What's different about them? And so they studied them, they were almost word for word. No difference, uh, no difference that would change the meaning, no difference that changes any doctrines, no difference that changes any outcomes of the stories, almost word for word uh, the same. So the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls reveals that the scriptures we're reading today have been passed down with great accuracy. They haven't been changed over the years. This, what we're reading, even though it's in English, is what God intended for those original writers to write in their language. It's what he intended for us to read today. One other thing that you could talk about was are the number of ancient manuscripts available for us to read. And so there's, this is a whole study of, uh, of ancient texts and manuscripts, and we're talking about 
things that were handwritten and copied before the printing press. So anything, in, in, when we're talking about New Testament manuscripts, we're talking about things that were written anywhere from maybe 50 or 60, 50 or 60 AD up until the 15 or 1600s. So a little comparison here. Uh, most people would believe that there was a man that walked the earth once named Plato. He was a philosopher, he wrote things down, and uh, people have studied him for generations. If you want to study Plato, there are about 250 manuscripts. And when I say manuscripts, really it's a fragment of a manuscript. No, when we talk about biblical manuscripts, we're not like, oh, we have a copy of 1 Peter from um, 100 AD. We have, well, that wouldn't be a good example. From 300 AD, we have fragments that are put together and, and it becomes God's word. Plato, there's about 250 manuscripts floating around, museums. They are, the oldest one was written or copied 1300 years after Plato died. But we all look at them and say, yeah, that's what Plato said. We have confidence that these were Plato's words or writings. If, you look, uh, if we look at Homer and the Iliad, you know, real popular um, uh, work that Homer did, probably 1,500 fragments of his manuscripts floating around in museums today. The oldest one was copied 400 years after Homer had died. We want to talk about the New Testament scriptures, there's over 5,800 fragments floating around in museums and in churches and in, in places, with the oldest ones written 50 years. Not 1,300 years, not 400 years, but 50 years after the originals were written. We, we have a, a, a copy of the entire New Testament that was copied 225 years after it was the, the, the final ones were written. And so we have this abundance of documents. We have them written much closer to the original writings. And this, it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't say that, oh, that means it's true. It means that we have greater reason to believe the Bible's true than to believe what Plato wrote or what Homer wrote was what they actually wrote. And so we have great confidence because of just the volume of manuscripts that are there. So what does God's, what does God's word say? Those are just, just a couple of asides. We're not, those, aren't, those are just some studies that you can do. There's other, other, you can look at archeology, span you can look at history, you can look at a lot of different reasons with somebody to say, let, let me give you a few, a few reasons to even consider the truth of the Bible because some people don't even wanna even open the book to see what it says. But we've got it open this morning. Let's go back into 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter says, We know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. How did, we, how did it even come to be written down? Peter says, No prophecy of Scripture come, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are recordings of what people experienced, what they saw, what they heard, what they did. But it's not just a, a, a result of someone who's like, yeah, I remember. 
Uh, even even if, if Sarah and I were to sit here and talk about Court's graduation party yesterday, and it wasn't just, there was, a, there was a group of us there celebrating some of these graduates, we would come up with different accounts. If I wrote down how the day went and she wrote down how the day went, we'd come up with kind of different accounts of what it looked like. We weren't side by side. They'd both be true, but Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It wasn't just that Peter decided, oh, I've got some thoughts that I want, so I'm gonna write them down. But it says that it was not prophecy, verse 21, no prophecy was produced by the will of man. It wasn't Peter just saying, I've got some things that I wanna write down and I want some churches to hear about and, and, and this is gonna last for thousands of years because it's important. But no, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So scripture is not the writing of man. Peter says that. It doesn't come from someone's own interpretation not by the will of man, but men spoke from God. The Holy Spirit guided the writings of Scripture. So, of course, the big question is, well, how did, what did that look like? How did that work? And we don't really have uh, a full picture of that. Some of the things that God reveals truth to us, he doesn't always reveal everything to us. But we do have a few, um, a few ideas from different passages of Scripture. Even right here it says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We were... Uh, finishing up the book of Acts in the men's Bible study last Thursday. And uh, we talked about Paul boarding the ship on his way to Rome. And it said that ship was driven along by the storm. It's the same word that Peter's using here, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the idea that in, in, uh, in sailing, you've got your boat on the water, if you've got your sails up, and you're waiting for the wind to fill the sails so that you can go to where you're trying to go. So the Holy Spirit is guiding the content of what the men were writing. Yes, there was the activity of the writer to write, but it was through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was pushing them in a direction, guiding them in a direction. So it's an example, um, this is a good example, and we, we, we talked about an example last two weeks ago of, of what scholars would call God's sovereignty and human agency at work together with neither one being compromised. All right, so God's sovereignty, God's ability to control what happens along with human agency, man's ability to make decisions for themselves at work together with neither one being compromised. That's why when, we, when, they, when you study God's word, how Peter writes looks different than how Paul writes and how when you read the Gospel of Matthew, there's all this detail and emphasis on uh, Jewish tradition, and you read the Gospel of Mark, and it looks like, man, this guy's in a hurry because he's just plowing through. Where's all the details? So each one's different because different men wrote it, and yet it was the Holy Spirit carrying them along to write the things that God wanted to be recorded. Second Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 uh, says this, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So he's saying these are David's words. And yet David also says this, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. So David is, is speaking of course, David has his own style, and of course, he was a poet, and he was an artist, and, and so when we read David, it doesn't read the same way as 1 Samuel reads, 
because he was a different writers, different personalities, but it's the spirit of the Lord with God's word on their tongues as they wrote the scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this for us. I don't have it written down. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, instruction, correction in righteousness. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, mixing them up there. I know it's behind me. I'm going to read it. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Where's Pastor Darrell when you need that verse? They give it to me. All scripture is breathed out by God, or all scripture is in, given by the inspiration of God, King James says. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So two things here. Scripture is given by God. It's not as Peter would say, it's not written by the will of man. It's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God or uh, as David said, the words of God is, are on my tongue. Scripture comes from God, but secondly, it is profitable. It's useful to us. Verse 17 says that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have the Scripture because as we study, as we gain understanding, we become complete, we become sanctified, we become more like Jesus, ready for every good work. It really echoes from, from uh, 2 Peter last week. His divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. His power is given to us through our knowledge of him. Through his word, we become equipped. We become knowledgeable. We become ready for every good work. And so here at the House of Prayer, we have a, a statement of faith. It should be on the back of your bulletin. And the very first statement in our statement of faith says that we believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. And that's a statement that's, or one similar to it, it's found in many church statements of faith. But we believe the Bible is inspired, breathed out by God, as uh, Paul said to Timothy. It's the words of God. What, what we read in the Bible today is what God intended for us to read. It's infallible. We believe it's trustworthy, that it's true, that it wasn't changed over the years, that yeah, God gave it to somebody, but it got, no, it didn't get changed. What, what we're reading today is what God wanted us to read. It's truth that it can be counted on. And the statement says that it's authoritative. And that's just logical. If it's the words of God and they're true, then it's authoritative. We read in Genesis that God said, let there be light and there was light. So we believe that God said it and that it happened. The Bible teaches that salvation's by grace through faith, and so we teach salvations by grace through faith. The Bible is the authoritative guide to salvation and for the life of faith that we are to be obedient to. The Bible is the inspired, only infallible word, authoritative word of God. 
Going back to the uh, study that I quoted in the beginning, George Barna also says this, we are seeing an untethered generation, young people completely adrift with no foundation in God, biblical truth, or standards of morality. The very thing that enabled generations before them to live well and flourish. This is for us. Those who still recognize the truth of God and his standards have a responsibility to share these with the next generation or they will be lost to this next generation and maybe to our nation forever. It's our responsibility. We call ourselves Christ followers. And part of being a Christ follower is to then go and make more Christ followers. Matthew chapter 19, the Great Commission. Chapter 28, excuse me. That's our responsibility as, as followers of Christ. And so whether you're one of our young graduates who has friends that don't know about Jesus, whether uh, you're a parent raising the young ones, you're a grandparent, um, you know, getting the young ones around, we are, it's our responsibility to stand on God's word, to affirm it to be true, and to pass the truth on to the next generation. And so I'm just excited because I believe that at the House of Prayer, we endeavor to do that. Wednesday night's just bustling with, uh, with kids. I think we probably have, I don't know, somewhere around 120 kids from the littlest ones through high school running around here on Wednesday night being taught the truth of God's word. We have Sunday school programs going on uh, in the hour before this one. If you, if you come just for the service but don't come for Sunday school, Man, you got, you're missing an opportunity for your kids to, to hear truth about God's word, but the reality is they don't care so much what they hear about at Sunday school. They wanna know what mom and dad think. They wanna know what grandma and grandpa think. And so we're doing the best thing that we can here, but they have to hear it from you. They, I, have, I have to make sure that my boys, that my nieces and nephews hear it from me you have to do that for your kids, your nephews, your nieces, your grandkids. It's our responsibility to share that truth with the next generation. So where are you placing your hope this morning? Our hope needs to be in Jesus. And God uses his word to reveal Jesus to both us and this next generation. We can have confidence that the Bible is the inspired, only infallible, authoritative word of God. Leads us into a relationship with Jesus. It gives us hope for the future. Peter writes about it frequently. He reveals the way to us through his word. So let's have confidence in that as a, as a church, but not just confidence in it for ourselves, but for the next generation that statistics say are much more likely to reject that truth than, than, than my generation and, and your generation. For our family members, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for our friends. We have his word, we believe it to be true. Let's be confident in what it says and let's share it with those who need to hear it. Heavenly Father, our hope really is in you this morning. Lord, I pray that as we are here this morning, 
Boy, it's good to be here. It's good to sing, pra- sing praises to you. It's good to open your word and to study it. But Lord, it's not enough. One hour a week isn't, isn't enough for any one of us to understand what your word is saying, to, to grasp the depths and the riches of the truths of your word so that we can uh, first be transformed ourselves and conform to the image of Jesus, uh, but then to take those truths and be able to communicate them with someone else. We have to experience them for ourselves by being in your word, uh, by loving your word, by studying your word, by sure coming to church, but being in a Sunday school class, being in a Bible study, uh, reading the Bible together with someone else during the week. Lord, give us a hunger for your word because it's through your word that you reveal the truth of the gospel, the truth of our hope for eternal life with you. The hope that a a world so desperately needs to go, uh, needs to know from from, uh, from Tanzania, where we have some going this week, to the person that lives across the street. Lord, give us a desire for your word because it's your word that points us right back to you. Uh, help us to have understanding to be able to communicate the truths of your word. Lord, thank you for, for loving us so much that you would send your son and you would let us know about it through the recording of, of the truths of your word. Would we have a desire to know it but also to proclaim it. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.